0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 44, verses 6-23. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay it out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides Me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me! You are my God! They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Here we come to the text for the sermon, verses 21-22. to Remember these things, O Jacob, For you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays His glory in Israel. Our text is Isaiah 44, 21-22. We have read that once already, but let's read it again. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are My servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are My servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to Me, for I have redeemed you. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus. I'm sure many of you at some time or another have listened to a symphony, even if that's not your kind of music. Maybe you've heard Beethoven's 6, also known as the Pastoral Symphony. It's fairly well known. That symphony has a a number of unique movements. One is very lighthearted, bringing to mind a beautiful day in a green meadow with a, a creek rolling by. Another movement evokes in your mind or is intended to evoke the experience of being in the middle of a raging thunderstorm. The music is meant to carry you from one scene to another. Well, the book of Isaiah can be compared to a symphony with a number of movements. Each of these movements has a a different tone and a different character, but they all belong to that one symphony. It begins with some dark and foreboding movements. If you go through the first few chapters of the book of Isaiah, you read about God's wrath against the sinful pride of Judah. And that is a, a threatening piece of music. But as we move further on in the book, we start to hear sweeter music. It starts off slowly, and it grows more and more intense. The notes become more joyful and more hopeful. Now, our text is one of these more joyous movements in Isaiah's symphony. Isaiah brings the good news of God's salvation to the covenant people of Israel. Now these words, these Gospel words, are addressed to the people of God as they are in exile in Babylon. That was God's judgment on them for their stubborn and prideful refusal to serve Him alone in His way alone. It was God's judgment for their idolatry and their covenant-breaking. Now this unfaithfulness, it aroused, it stirred up the wrath of God. And it brought Judah's future into serious question. Would she remain in captivity in Babylon forever? And if that would happen, what would become of God's promises? In the midst of all this uncertainty... God comes with something that is certain. He comes with good news. He comes with the encouraging, the uplifting words of the Gospel for His people. And so I preached to you God's Word this morning with this theme, the God who forms His people also redeems them by His free grace. And we'll see that this redemption means that God's people must first of all remember their place, and second of all, return to their Redeemer. Our text begins by directing Jacob, or Israel, to remember these things. The first question we have to ask is, what exactly are these things? Well, to answer that, naturally we look at the verses right before our text. And what we find there is a penetrating look at idol worship. Isaiah reports the way God looks at the whole business, quite bluntly. God finds it to be utterly ridiculous. A man takes a tree. He uses some of it to cook his supper, to uh, cook his meat and to bake his bread. He uses some of it to warm himself. And then the rest, he, he takes a chisel maybe or a saw or whatever, and he, he molds it into an idol and he bows down to it and he worships it. And the way it's presented here, it's almost laughable. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Idolatry is utter foolishness. And Israel should have known that. But many of them had forgotten. They didn't forget out of weakness or frailty. No, they deliberately and willfully forgot. Instead of serving the only true God and Him alone and in His way, instead they had gone after idols. We can read all about that in the early chapters of Isaiah's prophecy. They'd become enslaved to lifeless blocks of wooden metal. And that was one reason, an important reason, why those people were now in exile. They thought that this idolatry was liberating. That it was freeing them from a God who they could not control. But Yahweh... The Lord reigns as Almighty God. And there's nobody who can challenge His power or escape it. And that steps on a lot of people's toes. And it did so also for the people of Judah. They didn't want the sovereign God. Didn't want to serve Him. And so they put it out of their mind that idolatry is slavery. That idolatry is foolish. They forgot that God's covenant people had not been formed so that they could be enslaved to worthless idols. God's people must always remember that idolatry is the way of fools. It doesn't matter what shape the idol might take. It doesn't matter what the idol's name might be. John Calvin once said that each of us is a little idol factory. Little, but very productive. And so also in our own day, idolatry comes with many names. Comes with many shapes and many forms. But, as it was in our text, it is always foolish. It's that way in the sight of our God and it should be that way also in the sight of His people. And if God's people were to forget these things, they would suffer the consequences. Take the reign of Ahaz, for instance. King Ahaz lived during the time of Isaiah. He was one of the most notorious idolaters of the Old Testament. We're told in the Bible that Ahaz even offered up his own children, his own flesh and blood to idols. And at that time, God warned Judah to forsake idolatry and turn to him again. But they didn't listen. Well, God's judgment came furiously upon Judah for their disobedience. It came upon the people of Israel. 120,000 men were killed when Pekah, king of the northern kingdom, invaded the southern kingdom of Judah top of that 200,000 people were made into slaves all because they forsook the god of their fathers so we're told in second chronicles 28 verse 6 there was a price to pay for idolatry one that would be paid more than once and it was being paid now as judah was in captivity in babylon there they were the servants of a, a foreign people. See, loved ones, there's a warning here. Go from one form of slavery over to another. Idolatry always has consequences. But that's not the thing for which Israel was created. It wasn't created to be a servant of idols. It wasn't created to be a slave to foreign nations. She was formed to be the servant of Yahweh. And in those days, a servant often had a special relationship to his or her master. The servant, sure, was tasked with heavy labor. It wasn't easy to be a servant. But if a servant had a good master, he or she could depend on being cared for and well provided for. As long as the master was there, Well, the servant didn't have any worries. God had made Israel into such a servant. That was why God brought her into existence. Just like God had formed the the first man as the crown of His creation, so He had also molded and He had shaped. Like one would would mold or shape something with a, a lump of clay. God had done that also with Israel forming her, shaping her with a special purpose in mind. He created her. As his covenant people, a people to whom he made important promises about their eternal well-being, chose this people above all others, beginning with Abraham and then continuing down with Isaac and Jacob and so forth. Now notice how emphatic our text is on this point. It's mentioned twice in verse 21. I have made you, you are my servant. You are My servant, O Israel. Each time it's said as emphatically as possible. God wants His people to remember that they were not created to belong to anybody else. They want they have to remember Yahweh's promises to take care of her and provide for her so that she could serve Him. So often, instead of relishing her place as God's servant, Israel viewed it as a, as a terrible burden. Something that's too hard. And so often she thought it would be more liberating, more enjoyable to follow idols and other such foolishness. And if you want to know why, go home, take a Bible encyclopedia, look up some of these idols, and look what their worship involved. Their worship was meant to appeal to The flesh. And so Israel wanted that instead of God. She willfully forgot God so often. And in the past, God reacted to this with threats of judgment and chastisement, discipline. He carried out those threats, and now His people were in exile. But now God comes to them in a different way. The people have been humbled. They've been laid low. Their sins have brought them under God's judgment. But now he says that judgment is over. The faithful in Israel, they were always the faithful, even if they were just a a small remnant. They must be wondering, well, what's going to happen? What about God's promises? Is God forgotten? And that's why he comes with these comforting words a promise in our text. Israel was often faithless, but God would remain faithful. Though they often did, He would not forget them. So often those covenant people, they would go their own way, but out of His faithfulness to the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God would never completely abandon them. Loved ones, today we likewise can have great comfort in God's faithfulness to His promises, can't we? He'll never forget us because and through and in Christ we are His servants. You know, what assurance that brings us when we face grief and hardship in this life. Not only then, but also... What assurance that also brings us when we wander, when we're so prone to leave the God we love, when we fall into sin, God will never forget. God has given us and our children His promises and we can hold Him to that. He will not forget. This you have to remember. And that word, remember, that's a, a special word in the Bible. It's what we can, we can call a, a covenantal term. It's meant in many places also here to direct people to God, to the God who is in a relationship with His people. Israel was often reminded to remember what God had done for them. Ah, oh, We heard it when we read Deuteronomy 5. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember over and over again. Not just because of the deeds themselves and the benefits that they, they received from them, the people of Israel received, but to point to the God who did it. Here too, Israel is directed upwards to her God, the faithful God who would never turn His back on her. He's the God who would also redeem her from the foolishness of sin. They have to look back and remember what God has done. They have to remember the chains from which they have been set free. Remember how heavy those chains were. How those chains had imperfect edges that were so sharp. How how cold those chains were at night. How hot during the day. It was miserable. Enslaving. And then they're also reminded of how great God's salvation truly is. Indeed, how great God truly is. How merciful and gracious Not dealing with us according to our iniquities. Not giving us what we deserve. You see, brothers and sisters, God through these words is directing His people's hearts and minds back to Himself. Remember your place in relation to your God. Remember that you too are His servants. Servants who are united to the greatest servant of all our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 20.28, He said that He did not come to be served, but to serve. To be a servant. Believe in Him. Fix your eyes on Him. And united to Him in faith. We will strive to serve the one Master and to do that with an undivided heart. God didn't form you, choose you, call you to be anyone's servant, but His own. And then there's also the fact that your Master, He cares for His servant. Everything in this life, He turns to your good because He cares for you. He loves you. He's always faithful. Just as we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, the One who calls you is faithful and He will do it will keep His promises. As we consider our second point, we'll hear more about that. There can be nothing greater than God's promises here in our text. He promises to do things for His servant which should stir our hearts. God tells His people that He has swept away their offenses like a cloud and their sins like the morning mist. All their sins have been Obliterated. Now did you notice that all the verbs in verse 22, all the action words are in the past tense. They seem to describe what God has done in the past for His people. But how can that be? Since we're in the Old Testament here. Doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, this happens more often in the the prophetic writings of the Bible throughout the prophets. What we have here is a special rhetorical technique where the, the past tense is being used to describe something which has not yet happened. But yet, it is so vivid, it's so real in the writer's mind that it seems to have already happened. Let me illustrate it's like daydreaming about a vacation. You're sitting beside a friend and you're telling him, yeah, you know, I, I can see myself now. Airplane pulls up to the airport and I, I'm, I'm, I've stepped out into the heat. It hasn't actually happened, but it's so vivid in your mind. And so Israel's sins have not actually at this moment been swept away in the final, ultimate sense. Oh sure, there were the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, and they atoned for sin in anticipation of what Christ would do, and God accepted them on that basis. But this was an imperfect, and it was an ultimately unsatisfactory atonement. It had to be offered over and over and over again. The real thing still needs to happen in time and in fact. But the action in our text is seen as having already taken place. And that's because it is absolutely certain that it will happen. God is speaking from the perspective of His counsel and will. He knows for certain that Israel's sins will be swept away. What is it exactly that God is referring to here? The text says that God has wiped away their sins and offenses. And then we find a comparison. It's like a cloud or a morning mist. In the land of Palestine, it often happened that you would get the uh, clouds or mist present early in the morning, and then they would disappear as soon as the, the sun would rise in the sky and gain strength. The clouds and the mist are not blown away by the wind. They simply don't disappear out of sight. They don't get, they're not over the horizon somewhere. Rather, they vanish completely. Completely annihilated. No longer in existence. They no longer block your view or obscure the sky. And it's just like that with the sins of the people of Israel. Her sins were blocking the way. They were obscuring the relationship between God and His people. They were an obstacle. And in that sense, these sins are nothing to wink at. Sin is serious and should never be underestimated as if it were a cloud or some light thing. But the amazing thing is that for God, these sins become as nothing. Through God's redemptive plan, God is going to make these sins disappear just like clouds and mist under the scorching sun. Sin is serious and God is holy and just. But He has a way to deal with it. So respect all those things and keep all those things intact. Israel can look forward to a time when their sins will no longer be an obstruction because they'll be completely gone. On that basis, God will redeem her. This redemption has two aspects. More immediate redemption looks to the return of God's people from exile. They were going to be led back to the promised land. There they would return to the communion with Yahweh, which they had known in years past. Most importantly of all, that meant that they were going to rebuild the temple. And Yahweh would once again live among His people. He would be present there among them in the Holy of Holies. An end to this slavery is in sight. But God's people were also taken into the slavery of sin. That's the second aspect of this redemption. And sin must be paid for. God's redemptive plan, He had the way. His only Son, would be obedient to death on a cross. That would be the price to pay to buy back His people from sin and its effects. God would wipe away her sins with the blood of His precious Son. With the bloody sweat That came off his forehead in Gethsemane with the tears that rolled down his face in the midst of all his suffering. All of that would wipe away the sins of his precious servant. He would redeem his people through the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus. They wouldn't get what they deserve. Instead of wrath and judgment, They would get mercy. They would get free grace through Christ's work. And so then you see, don't you, how these these words of our text are a a grand prophecy of the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we find the good news of salvation. We find the work of our Lord Jesus Christ anticipated, looked forward to. Here we find the sweeping away of iniquities and sins. God who has redeemed his people. I find vivid and forceful speaking about God, the one who forms his people, the one who calls them, but also the one who acts and delivers them from both Babylon and, and more importantly from sin and evil. Israel herself is helpless, helpless to do anything about her sin. But God is her redeemer, the one who will never forget his promises. It's redemption would be accomplished by our Lord on the cross. At that time, all of the sins of God's elect were obliterated once and for all. Colossians 2, 13-14 says it. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away. What did He do with it? He nailed it to the cross. Our sins vanished with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ when He said, It is finished. Here's where all the sins of God's people were dealt with. And Israel could only know this in part as something which lay in the future. But we today, we know it as an accomplished fact. The full reality of the redemption which God has given to us in Christ. We know it. What a glorious reality it is. Through the incredible riches of His grace and favor, we are His own, and He will never forget us. And although it wasn't as clear as we have it today, it was also a glorious message in the time of Isaiah. And having heard that message, what was to be their response? Well, you know, it comes with those three simple words. Return to Me. Because of what God was about to do, Israel was to respond by coming back to God. To have a desire to turn away from the foolishness of idolatry and to turn back to the One who both formed her and will redeem her. God's promise was to give it to them to make them realize that in the future there's something special for them and He doesn't want them to miss out on that. And even though God would bring back the people as a whole from Babylon, it wasn't automatic that every individual in Israel would experience the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Each person in the covenant community was called to make his or her return to the Redeemer. Same with us. It's not automatic for us either. Well then and now the call is to return, to turn, To God. It's been said often enough, but I think it needs to be said again that salvation is not automatic just because you're a member of the church. Just because you were baptized and are a a part of the covenant. God's promise is given to you. Certainly. But He also calls you to respond in faith. To appropriate that promise. That means to, to make that promise your own. To say, yes, Lord, that promise is for me and I believe it. In our text, God's people were called to turn to the Redeemer. The one who promised He would buy them back with the precious blood of His only Son. And today that call comes to those who know far more about the reality of God's redemption. How rich we are. We have the full revelation of God's salvation, unlike Israel, who could only know in part. And with that knowledge, how much more shouldn't we be led to continually turn to our God? Both corporately and individually, we have to constantly repent of our sins Time and again, we must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in our Redeemer alone for our eternal salvation. And so the message of our text definitely brings hope and joy to us today, doesn't it? What praise we ought to bring to our God for His redemption. Not only with our lips, but also with, also with our lives. You know, we're so rich. And seeing that, how can we be among those who run back to the foolishness of idolatry? How can we follow the steps of this world in which we live? Listen to the world in which we live. The message they tell us is that slavery to idols is freedom. Don't listen. Remember. Remember. Remember our distinct place as church in this world. We're different. He formed us to be His servants. And we have a special relationship with our Master. We must remember who our God is, the One to whom we belong, the covenant God, faithful day in and day out. We must always look to our Lord Jesus Christ who bought us with His blood who fulfilled the great promises of God for our salvation. And so with His Spirit in our thankful hearts, let's always turn and return to our God. Let's pray. Yahweh, our faithful God and Father, We thank and we praise and honor You for the rich promises of Your Word. We thank You for choosing us to be Your servants, even though there was nothing worthy in us to make us deserve this. We praise You for calling us, and we're grateful that You will never forget us. Lord God, Your promises engage our hearts, and we're thankful for them. Above all, we adore You for the redemption we have in Christ Jesus, that All our sins have been wiped away with His precious blood. Father, help us to believe this with each new day. With each day, we pray that You would give us more grace so that we would always return to You, the God of our salvation. Father, bend our stubborn wills so that they conform to Yours. Open up our ears to always hear Your Spirit speaking through Your Word. Melt our consciences and help us to hate the slightest sin. Lord God, we ask you to burn down our idol factories so that we would serve you with an undivided heart. Hear us, O God, for we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.